Latinos are becoming the majority in our cities, state, and all through the country in the years ahead. And are we ready for the challenges of education and immigration and leadership that are going to transform our country? Miguel Solis is going to talk about that with us today on Good God. Stay tuned. Hello, I'm George Mason, host of Good God, Conversations That Matter About Faith and Public Life. I'm pleased to welcome Miguel Solis as our guest. Miguel, it's wonderful to have you back. Thank you for having me. Enjoyed our first conversation. Uh, and uh, during that time, we, we talked about uh, your uh, experiences with your precious daughter, Olivia, and we're delighted that she's growing and recovering and healthy now after she went through such a traumatic uh, uh, experience with the heart transplant after birth. And then we talked some about your role as a trustee uh, with DISD and education and what's happening in Dallas. Uh, but today I'd like to uh, pursue some of your other uh, activity and your main job is that you are the president of the Latino Center for Leadership Development Correct. here in Dallas. An important role that, it, that you are passionate about, uh, not only because you're Latino, but because of your sense of uh, this uh, importance of, uh, of helping to grow Latino uh, involvement and engagement and leadership in our community and achievement and all of that. So uh, tell us about this organization. How did they get started? How did you get involved in it? And what does it do? That sort of thing. Really, the, the organization was uh, born from a few experiences uh, that, that I had, but also mm -hmm. experiences that uh, the founder mm -hmm. of our organization, uh, Jorge Valdor, who mm -hmm. is a, a local businessman and SMU grad, mm -hmm. uh, and actually a Cuban immigrant, okay. uh, experienced. So the, the idea began to emerge really at the time that I had just been elected to the Dallas School Board. Um, mm. I'd had a conversation with George about the fact that I was running for a uh, position, one of nine, mm -hmm. that would govern a district that basically out of 160,000 students uh, had, was made up of 72% uh, Latino student population. Mm -hmm. And yet, once I was elected, I was the only Latino yes. on a board of nine. Yes. Um, that was shocking yes. uh, to me. And then as I started to do the research and looked around other uh, municipal institutions, governing institutions, that was the same case, not just here in Dallas, mm -hmm. uh, but in Fort Worth mm -hmm. and in other areas in Texas, and, and quite honestly, across the nation. Yeah. Latinos are just not in positions of decision-making, particularly in the public policy realm. Mm -hmm. um, and that was shocking to me. Mm -hmm. But it was also sort of a challenge to want to do something about it. Uh, the other thing was I was a millennial. You know, mm -hmm. I was 27 years old and was elected and now in this uh, position of, of extreme responsibility for the future of our city. You had to grow up fast. Very much so. But I also recognized that, you know, there were other millennials out there that I knew that absolutely had the ability to be able to do what I was doing. And if mm -hmm. not, if... if um, they were probably more prepared than I was to yes. be able to do this, but they weren't choosing public life. Mm -hmm. um, they'd been maybe turned off from it or just didn't see the value in it. Yes. And so I said, look, if our nation's going to continue to become more and more Latino, yes. um, and in some ways uh, our, our, the destiny of our nation is tied to the experience of Latinos, then we better make sure 
that the people that are in positions of decision-making in the policy realm, at the local, the state, and the national level, at the very least, can empathize with mm -hmm. the Latino experience, yes. can identify the opportunities and challenges, and then put solutions in place. And that could be a Latino or someone who's not Latino, mm -hmm. but wants to know more. And so we created from that the Latino Center for Leadership Development. And very briefly, we do three things. We have a year-long leadership academy where we're training people from the ages of 25 to 40 who want to pursue public office on the value of doing that and then how to do that mm -hmm. and then how to succeed once you are in office. Mm -hmm. We have a policy institute where we're creating new ideas to try to solve some of the issues Latinos face in the mm -hmm. public policy area. And then special projects that try to highlight and address current um, challenges that Latinos face. You made a really interesting point about if America is going to continue to um, grow in its Latino influence, and the statistics tell us that it's demographically moving in that direction. Uh, this, this also is, speaking as a white male, I would say what we're experiencing in our country right now is the, um, uh, the growing realization among uh, white uh, Americans that their day of dominance, our day of dominance in, in, in public life and mm -hmm. in industry and all of that, is, is coming to an end. And uh, so I think what we're seeing is we're seeing some people wanting to double down on that uh, role of dominance and saying we need to draw lines, we need to protect uh, the fact that we've been responsible for the flourishing of this country up till this time. Uh, and, and, and yet there is another way. Uh, the, the other way is for us to grow in our understanding of the Latino experience and realize this vision of how we, we can actually be enriched by our relationships. Yeah. If we will open ourselves up and learn uh, to walk hand in hand and be neighbors with one another. I mean, you captured it perfectly, George. I mean, this, this is the story of America, yeah. the good and the bad. Yes. Um, America has always been a nation. I mean, it was a nation founded on welcoming others, welcoming yes. the outcast, welcoming the exile, welcoming those seeking opportunity, and mm -hmm. then f building a foundation around that for a country yes. that would ultimately become the, you know, the shining city on a hill, right. the, the example to the world about what could happen when you embrace diversity. But the, at the same time, Yes. Um, wave after wave of new people coming to America, there was always a power structure that pushed back yes. against that new wave. I mean, oh, and even in, uh, you know, we, we, we seem to talk about nowadays how, uh, you know, we, we thrived because of European immigration and if, you know, that that was sort of an, uh, an ideal time. But I'm from the Northeast and, yeah. and, and I know uh, that there was a time when Italian Americans were not as welcomed, when the Irish were considered to be uh, people that we had to be careful of and all that sort of thing. So there, it, it's not entirely just about European immigration being good and uh, Latino immigration being bad, but we are seeing that being more focused now, aren't we? On Certainly uh, so. Yeah. Um, and, and I think we live, we, we obviously live in very different times. We, have a, yeah. we live in a time where hate and fear 
um, can be stoked in, in a very quick way through mm -hmm. social media, oh, through yes, right. different uh, mediums of technology, mm -hmm. uh, the ability for us to be able to cast stones right. um, and not have to worry about the consequences. Yes. Um, those are things that are new and unique to this time, and it's, mm -hmm. it's important that we recognize both that phenomena but also that we instill in those who have the ability to make an impact in shifting yes. the dialogue to you know the courage and the boldness to be able to do that. And we think right. that's you know that's critical to especially public servants, right. those who get to shape the national discourse, those who get to shape the decisions that will ultimately impact yes. uh, future generations. And so, we, look, I mean, you can either embrace. Uh, you know the, the the new demographic change or not. If you don't, you're you're going to be left behind. And if you see things through the lens purely of power, right? That that because this new change is happening, my power is being depleted. Right. Um, you're going to be left behind. But he, he, the facts are this. You know we are more and more a Latino nation. Yes. Um, just in the city of Dallas alone, it's 44% Latino, and we're going to be a majority Latino community in the next 10 years. Right. Right. Um, and Really, it's it's a positive thing because in, in the general scheme of things, Latinos are younger. Mm -hmm. um, and while our European and our Asian counterparts are mm -hmm. aging out of their systems, Latinos mm -hmm. are bringing the median age of Americans down, yes. allowing us to thrive in the global mm -hmm. economy mm -hmm. if we ensure that those Latinos have economic opportunity, that they've got education, mm -hmm. that they've got the health care that they need, that they're rising out of poverty. And all of those things, mm -hmm. which are critical yes. to the future of our country, right. require policies that will embrace this diversity and help grow the opportunities for Latinos, which will ultimately help rise the tide for all of us. Uh, uh, rising tide lifts all boats is, is one of the classic statements of, of economic uh, opportunity uh, that instead of viewing it as a zero-sum game where there's only so much to go around and where you have to divide it up, the idea of expanding an economy and expanding people's participation in it is uh, a, a beautiful way to think about that, that future. But you know, you and I were talking earlier uh, off camera about uh, about how, you know, if 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 we don't realize this opportunity for growing leadership in the Latino community, uh, then what we're going to get instead are only activists mm -hmm. who are pushing back against the limited opportunity, and the tension will rise instead of fall. Uh, and, uh, and, and the truth is, activists have an important role to play on the, uh, uh, on the vanguard of any movement, mm -hmm. but they don't always translate into effective leaders when they're in p positions of power. And it seems to me that so w the, the part that you know, traditionally Anglo-Americans can play in this is actually to support efforts like yours, mm -hmm. where you're building into uh, the, the youth and the, the future uh, confidence in, and, and competence in leadership Absolutely. skills. Absolutely. I mean, our, the historical narrative of our country is rooted in the evolution of activism to governance. Right. 
I mean, we became a country because we had activists right. who decided to say we will no longer accept the status quo right. and we seek to forge a new way. Right. But there's a reason why we remember Paul Revere and Samuel Adams one way and we remember Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson and George Washington a different way. Yes. They are both essential mm -hmm. to our nation mm -hmm. and getting us to where we are today, but they play two very different yes. roles. And so, you know, we think at the LCLD that there's no reason to be ashamed of um, where the Latino community has come through activism and that mm -hmm. you have to you have to sort of fan the flames. You have to bring issues to light and you have to raise your voice to make sure that those issues are taken seriously. But we also recognize at some point it requires solutions. Yes. And in many ways, those you can scream as loud as you want, but if those solutions don't manifest themselves, then at some point you're gonna get hoarse. Absolutely. Uh, and so right. you need to ensure that you know where the lever, lev levers of power are and how to take hold of those levers of power and there are particular ways to be able to do that. And that doesn't mean you need to, that you have to make some Faustian bargain and sell your soul to um, certain powers in order to be able to be at that decision-making table. You can still hold true to your values and your principles and your desire to want to change the status quo, but there are particular ways that you can do it. And that's something that, that I've even experienced and had to learn mm -hmm. uh, while serving on the school board. I remember when I was uh, first here in Dallas, uh, we had the decisive vote, um, it's, goodness, it's probably 27 years ago now, something like that, uh, to move to single-member districts yep. in the city council. And there was, um, uh, there was a tremendous debate, especially in the Anglo community, uh, over the fact that we would, um, that, that they wanted a 10-4-1 plan where mm -hmm. uh, there would be four more at-large districts and uh, we ended up with the 14-1 plan, and there was fear that we'd end up with uh, uh, balkanization and uh, you know uh, district politics that people wouldn't be able to cooperate. Uh, but but gladly, uh, I think what we saw is we saw some leaders speak up. I remember Roger Staubach, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, speaking up in favor of 14-1 uh, because. Unless there is an empowerment of people in their neighborhoods and district uh, where they feel a sense uh, that, it, that someone isn't just looking after them, but they are looking after themselves right. and looking after each other, and then they can look after the common good. Unless that happens, we'll always be in a kind of uh, patronage society. Certainly. And, and patronage is, uh, is always going to have a sense of some people being up and some people down. Absolutely. You know, one of the best books that I've read about the history of Dallas, um, and it is a it's a very honest um, history is the accommodation. Oh my goodness! By the yes. Dallas, uh, Dallas Observer Colony, yep. Jim Shoots. Jim Shoots. You know, mm -hmm. and and that history of accommodation right. um, and and patronage, I think, in some ways, while it led to um, the tamping down of racial tensions racial at one time and revolution it, it in was some a, ways. it was a compromise it was an accommodation certainly so that we then paid a penalty for I, and that's sort of, so yeah. that's the second piece right is that how do we i, I would say that 141 was probably the most um the the biggest sweeping civil rights accomplishment yes. Yes. in Dallas yes. in that it truly gave a voice to the disenfranchised right. but i would also argue that we are still 
sort of in this evolutionary process of mm -hmm. ensuring that 14.1 is living up to its truest ideals. Yes. I mean, I do still feel like there in some ways are elements of this ward politics mentality. Sure, sure. We need to ensure, the only way to break that is to ensure that we are truly empowering our constituents to be able to see right from wrong, to be yes. able to understand who is doing the job for them and who who is not. Um, and, and I think, you know, that, that, that comes with education, but it also rests to some degree with those who are being elected to positions of power. Good. What are we doing to grow our community and empower them to truly shape the destiny of their communities. Good. There's so much more to pursue here. Let's take a brief break and promote uh, a nonprofit in our community, and uh, we'll be right back. Perfect. Okay. Children's Medical Center's mission is to make life better for children. Here are some of their heroes. They had their lives saved by children's and then helped others by giving back. There are so many more, and you can help them by supporting the fundraising efforts of Children's Medical Center Foundation. Just go to children's.com and click on I Choose Children's. Be a hero yourself. We're back with Miguel Solis. Miguel, we were talking about the, uh, the growing Latino influence and the opportunity for leadership in our community, in our state, and in our country. Uh, we, we have some tremendous pressures happening politically right now at the border, and uh, we're hoping some of those are being mitigated as families are being reunited, uh, but it was a painful experience for Latinos in particular. Uh, how, can you give voice to what you felt in the Latino community during this period of time as, uh, as people were coming across the border and families, children being separated and, uh, and, and all of this taking place? Uh, it, it must have been a painful thing. Certainly so. I mean, I think that it's first important to, to you know, state the obvious, and that is, though the Latino community is a, a strong community um, and one that shares similar experiences, you can't paint the Latino community with a broad brushstroke, right? right? I mean, there, right. there are Latinos that are new to this country. There are Latinos that have been here for, for literally generations. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would hate to speak on behalf of all Latinos, but I can tell you that those that I have spoken to, mm -hmm. um, as we've experienced not just this wave of mm -hmm. uh, the migrant crisis, particularly the youth migrant crisis from Central America, but the previous one back in 2014, mm -hmm. is a general feeling of um, not feeling like you are included in the American process, yes. not feeling like this country welcomes you, mm -hmm. you know. And there's a quote that I consistently reflect on um, when we're talking about immigration. It's a quote that uh, Bobby Kennedy once delivered. And uh, he said, you know, you and I are Americans. It's not really easy to know what that means. Mm. But in some part, to be an American means to have been an outcast, mm. an exile, mm -hmm. a stranger, mm -hmm. and to know that he or she amongst us who denies the outcast, mm -hmm. the exile, and the stranger, they deny America. Yes. And there are far too many people today that feel empowered and emboldened mm -hmm. to deny the very things that made America great to begin with. Yes. And again, we, we, you know, I've talked about this historical perspective of this is sort of a dialectical process. It's not the first time yes. that we have seen 
this uh, this manifests itself. This mm -hmm. nationalism, this desire uh, to put everything into a Manichaean box of right. you know us versus them. Mm -hmm. um, but each time that it rears its ugly head, it requires uh, those people who are willing to do it to call it out mm -hmm. um, and to remind us mm -hmm. of what made our country great to begin with. It seems to be uh, interesting to me and, and tragic that many people who are committed to the idea that America was founded on biblical principles, mm -hmm. on uh, values of the Judeo-Christian tradition, and who actually borrow language about America being a city on a hill, uh, things like this. Uh, and, 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 and many of these folks who want very much for the values of, of that tradition to be encoded in American life uh, seem to make an exception when it comes to this very specific language about, about welcoming the stranger, Certainly. about the duty uh, to remember that you yourself were once uh, strangers and foreigners. You were aliens in a place. And, and so the whole identity of the people of God in uh, biblical religion is, is formed around this. And if it, it, we, we really can't have it both ways. We're either going to say that we're going to be a nation like everyone else with uh, cultural limits and borders, or we're going to let the biblical wisdom uh, infuse our understanding of who we are. And if you, if you do that, you have to have an openness to the stranger and the foreigner, to the oppressed, to those who are coming, uh, and, uh, it, and you know, drawing lines against some when you were once that is, is really not a biblical uh, witness. Well, there's really not much more that I can add to what you just said. I mean, I think you, you captured that beautifully. I mean, you, you, we have to call out what, what this is. In, in mm -hmm. many ways, it's hypocrisy. Yeah. You cannot choose text from the Bible to uh, both the New and the Old Testament to support your arguments and then ignore others, ignore others, right? I yeah. mean, some of the most famous migrants in, in, in uh, human history mm -hmm. uh, are rooted in the Bible. Right. Adam and Eve were migrants. Yes, they yes, left the yes. garden, and they, they were did. they were undocumented too they, because yes. they came with no clothes and no papers or anything, right? So they they're migrants. Jesus, Jesus Mary, and Joseph. Mary and Joseph were migrants. Left Bethlehem and uh, couldn't go back to Nazareth and went to Egypt for safety. And yeah, absolutely, they're, they're migrants. So you yeah, know, it's yeah. like so we cannot pick and choose if we're going right. to truly live the the principles and the ideals and the teachings of our faith. Mm -hmm. um, in situations that that fit our political agenda, we have to do it twenty four seven, and it's a struggle. I recognize that it, it, it is a struggle because to to, to make a, a politically important argument, though, in the whole process, uh, is is to recognize that uh, you know that we can't obviously operate with open borders either. There there has to be some process whereby we have uh, an orderliness about people coming and, and how that happens. And we've never seemed to have been able to agree on that historically. And uh, so people love to talk about how the system is broken. Uh, and it feels to me, I don't know about this with you, I'd be interested in your take on this, but I think people left and right politically both agree that this is broken. Our immigration system is broken. And yet, I've yet to hear anyone 
who seems to have the political courage to say, here's how we should fix it and let's work on fixing it because it seems to me that Democrats and Republicans both keep coming up against a choice between this, keeping it broken is a better political opportunity for us to blame the other person than trying to fix it. I, yeah, I completely agree with you. And, you know, I would say that there are, you know, I, I am certainly not somebody that just believes, you know, we need to allow everybody into the country regardless of, you mm -hmm. know, their, their circumstances and mm -hmm. what that would mean to the future of our country. I mean, there are sensible policies that can absolutely be put into place. And some of those policies do, um, you know, require us ensuring that we have secure borders. Right. I, I, but there's also some, you know, things that are not so crazy when you look across the globe. Um, policies that can be put in place that for whatever reason um, are not politically palatable or are third rail policies uh, when it comes to America. I mean, you look at the EU. Yes. The EU is an secured but open border mm -hmm. contingent of and coalition of countries. Yes. Um, they have figured out a way, not mm -hmm. perfectly, right. but they have figured out a way to try to make those things work. Right. And for some reason that is completely unfathomable right. in the Western Hemisphere. Mm -hmm. um, and so there are policies that we can put in place. Right. At the same time, the hyper-partisanship of our politics mm -hmm. has started to erode mm -hmm. the fundamental elements of our democracy necessary right. to help advance our country. Mm -hmm. And we've used the term existential a few times. Mm -hmm. I think the most existential issue mm -hmm. that our country faces is the erosion of our democratic republic mm -hmm. and the ideals established mm -hmm. within the, the, the founding fathers' mm -hmm. uh, documents that they established to try to create mm -hmm. our government because of party politics. Yeah. We were warned of this at the beginning of, of our country. I mm -hmm. mean, you know, Madison famously said political parties um, can lead to uh, the de-evolution of mm -hmm. our democracy. Right. Washington in his farewell address said, beware of political parties. Mm -hmm. And we have not seemed to heed that advice. And, right. and that will continue to become an issue. So in recent days, uh, you have begun uh, using social media with uh, tweets to establish uh, more and more of your sense of vision of what has to happen for the transformation of our political culture, mm -hmm. uh, for the growth of our city and state. Uh, some of the things that uh, uh, you see beyond uh, just your role in DISD, but, but also in, in the city. Uh, tell me about the motivation for expanding that conversation and laying out that vision. Absolutely. So the first piece of motivation comes from a quote from Tennyson that I have frequently reflected on um, at least since I decided to run for the school board. And that is, what shall I be at 50? Should nature keep me alive if I find the world so bitter when I'm but 25? Mm. Dallas wow. is a city that I intend on living in for the rest of my life. It's mm -hmm. the city that I'm going to raise my daughter in, mm -hmm. that I'm going to raise a family in. And if I want to see the city of the future mm. that I believe we need to have in order for my family and many other families across our community to live the good life, mm -hmm. I need to do something about that now. Mm -hmm. And so 
the second motivation is wanting to try in some ways as this next municipal election, election cycle begins to emerge to introduce concepts and ideas into the public domain for debate mm -hmm. about what policies will be necessary in order to solve some of Dallas's most critical issues, including mm -hmm. things that are Gordian knots like poverty yes. um, and, and segregation. Mm -hmm. So, I, you know, I, I really want to make sure that we shape the dialogue of this Good. next election cycle in a way that will allow those that then get elected yes. to take action on these issues. Right. And I know that among those things that you've laid out are that we continue to grow uh, in all the many, many um, programs that have been supportive of change in DISD. It really hasn't been one thing, has it? It's been an extraordinary list an of, amount of it, you know, issues. my goodness, yeah. all sorts of partnerships and nonprofit activities and uh, reading partners and every every sort of thing that you can think of. So there's 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 been that, and then the, the need for affordable housing, the mm -hmm. need for Grow South to continue to uh, mm -hmm. to achieve and 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 more strength in rebuilding the infrastructure of Dallas. Uh, these are all things that you've been laying out in, in part of the political agenda, as well as the growth of leadership uh, in, in the Latino community and uh, uh, giving more voices to otherwise disenfranchised people in political power. Disenfranchised individuals, but also people that I believe as new generations of leaders emerge in our city, um, ensuring that they've got the ability to be able to give back to their community through public service. Right. I mean, they, I, I am of the firm belief that there is no better way to make an impact on your community, whether it's at the local level, the state, or the national level, than to involve yourself in public policy, in public service, as an appointed, an elected official, a community leader. But doing that allows us to really ensure that we've got the best and the brightest at the table, helping mm -hmm. us create the community that we ultimately deserve. And, and lastly, you know, there's a qu another quote that I go to uh, that was that was delivered uh, again uh, by Bobby Kennedy. And some people see things as they are and ask why. Right. I dream of things that never were and ask why not. Yes. We really have got to stoke a culture of why not mm -hmm. uh, in this next generation of leaders, so that they decide to envision a new Dallas and then take the action to really mold that Dallas. Well, you have laid out vision, which often is a part of the activist um, characteristic, mm -hmm. and yet you also have uh, the capacity to serve and to exercise power in appropriate ways that in, in leadership, and you are that transformational kind of figure, I think, Miguel, that oh, we're you. hopeful for uh, more and more in Dallas and in our country. Thank you for sharing your vision of all this with Thank us. Thank you, George. I appreciate Grateful the Grateful to have you on Good God. Thank you. Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White. Guest coordination and social media by Upward Strategy Group. Good God, Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2019 by Faith Commons. Children's Medical Center's mission is to make life better for children. Here are some of their heroes. They had their lives saved by children's and then helped others by giving back. There are so many more, and you can help them by supporting the fundraising efforts of Children's Medical Center Foundation. 
Just go to Children's.com and click on I Choose Children's. Be a hero yourself.